Hey guys, just a heads up before we start this week's episode, we recorded it on Wednesday the 20th in the afternoon for release today, Thursday the 21st. So obviously this was recorded before uh, the Gantz and Lapid parties announced that they are going to run together and uh, share the prime ministership if they win the uh, election. So we'll release hopefully an episode early next week reflecting on the obviously game-changing events in the Israeli election. But enjoy this week's episode reflecting on uh, Warsaw and racism in Israeli politics. Enjoy. This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Senior JU Israel Educator Michael Unterberg, and today joined as always by co-host and Director of JU Israel, Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Okay, Mike. You sound chipper. Uh, today we are once again joined by Israel Educator and producer of this podcast, Matt Lippman. How are you, Matt? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Good afternoon to you. Can you not lean back so far? I'm sorry. Good afternoon, Michael. Thank you. As you can hear, we still don't have Ben back, but... God willing, next week, Ben will be back. We'll be recording in studio. Today, once again, we're resorting to uh, older, less uh, efficient means. Uh, and today's topic, we're going to reflect on, we, we want to begin with by talking about the uh, Middle East conference that occurred in Warsaw last week. Alan, can you fill us in on what happened there and why it mattered? I, I will admit, uh, I, I, I'm cynical about these things, but can you give us sort of the bird's eye view of what happened in Warsaw? Um, well, first of all, it's kind of like uh, at this point, it seems like it's almost left the, you know, how things go so quickly mm -hmm. through the media, um, you know, uh, grinder, let's say, seems to have left. But it was significant. The significance really was that um, most of the, I guess, major Western countries sent representatives uh, to Warsaw, as well as Israel, as well as I guess we'll say the Sunni Arab world, um, to have a conference to talk about the future of the Middle East. Um, Netanyahu uh, sort of put it out there as really dealing with Iran, but other voices, the rest of the, a lot of the other voices tried to like make it not, give not that voice, no, no, it's not just about Iran, but it's about others, but, they, but it seems pretty much that's what it was really for, that the, the lines are being drawn in the Middle East is what it really seems like is happening. And Certainly it, he felt that that's what he was connecting to the Sunni Arabs about. And, and there seemed to be, although they didn't send their leaders or kings, and he was there as prime minister, but he, he did communicate to their foreign ministers about those issues. Right. I mean, they were foreign ministers, which are high level. And also, you have to remember, Bibi was the foreign minister at that point. And we last that, week. Yeah, last week. We get that change maybe a little bit on. Um, but I think what's uh, really... Um, uh, really interesting. First of all, there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of insecurity in the Middle East, meaning the Arab uh, Sunni countries in Israel, and also the other side. I suppose about because they were having a conference of their own with Turkey, Russia, and Iran um, uh, at the same time. So there it seems that lines are being drawn in the Middle East, um, and the 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 focal point is Syria. Um, and what's happening in Syria and the American withdrawal from Syria, the continued civil war there, but with the fact that Assad is almost pretty much consolidated forces there um, with Russia. Today in the news, uh, 
uh, Putin canceled a meeting with um, Bibi and gotten into really see what that is. But it, it, there, there seems to be a a bubbling of under under the water, maybe like tension uh, that hasn't like it's kind of in the newspapers, but it's not at the full throttle. But I, I think it's something to at least be concerned about. There is a sense of factions consolidating between nations, of sides being chosen. It feels a little bit like pre-World War One, in terms of you have this solidifying of alliances that in theory, I hope not, but could lead to some form of conflict. Yeah, and so that's, uh, that, that's pretty much happened. So Bibi was really putting this off as a huge accomplishment. I, I think one could say, if I, I, as I told my students, we were talking about this week a little bit, um, in uh, 1991, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and America led an international coalition to get Iraq out of Kuwait, Israel was purposely left out of that because the other Sunni Arab countries would not join in the coalition otherwise. And in fact, Saddam Hussein is the first time Israel was attacked by rockets, by Scud rockets from so far especially. Um, uh, attacked Israel to try and draw Israel into the fight to try and break up the coalition. Because he knew that Israeli uh, doctrine was, if attack, you always strike back. He knew that if he sent Scud rockets from Iraq into Israel, Israel would have to strike Iraq, which would break the coalition of Arab forces joining American forces because they wouldn't be on the same side as Israel. And here we have in Warsaw the forming of a new Middle Eastern coalition where European powers and Middle Eastern powers are joining and splitting along the Saudi Arabia-Iran Nexus, uh, access, yeah. Yeah, definitely access uh, or Cold War. You could talk about the, yeah. uh, that's, that, that is continuing here. So that, that's kind of, um, so that, that is monumental in the fact that Israel really sat in, coal, I mean, if you want to call it coalition talks or at least, you know, in, in, a, broader, uh, in a broader forum that included Western, uh, Western countries, Arab countries, Israel. Um, and uh, I think one should recognize that those are, you know, a lot of times, well, what, what is the Prime Minister Bibi done? Especially in, I think, North America, you often hear how, well, Bibi is isolating Israel and whatnot. And the truth is, he's not really. <laughs> when it comes to diplomacy or foreign, I mean, they're, they're, it's not easy, but uh, that, that's a huge accomplishment, I think. Well, he has, he has driven a bit of a wedge between Israel and, the, and members of the Democratic Party in America, but around the world, in certainly Eastern Europe and Africa and Asia, he's made inroads as... Yeah, and, and, and in the Middle, Middle East, yeah. sitting, you know, openly talking with uh, heads of states of Arabs or foreign ministers is, is huge. In a friendly, often even jokey sort of like, uh, like we all know we're really buddies, it's just time to... You know, yeah. we haven't done the open embrace yet because you're you're not ready, but it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things you mentioned, the Democratic Party, for example, is um, when it comes to that that that, um, that gap between Israel and the diaspora. He's yeah, there's there's a big gap now between where the the Jewish community, at least the Democratic supporters of the Jewish community in America, and where Bibi is. But that's because also Bibi's choice of allies. That we've just mentioned, the uh, right-wing Eastern European leaders, um, the Arab countries, uh, at least the dictatorships, um, Donald Trump himself, of course, uh, because Bibi has aligned himself that way, that's almost by definition going to lead to a, 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 a breakaway from the left-wing American jury. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. Well, in other words, you can, you can, you can 
criticize that you disagree with what Bibi has done as foreign minister, but you can't say he hasn't done anything as foreign minister. You can say, I think he's done the wrong things, but he's been effective. Right. You can say, I agree, I agree with Matt 100%. And what you're saying is you could say, you can't say that, Israel, that Bibi has made Israel more isolated, which I think is that the false claim. But you can, but you can say, well, I don't like the people he's playing with. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would absolutely agree with that summary. I think it's a good, a good way. Of yeah. And you can, you can say, I agree with it. I mean, that's your political opinion, but you, you can't say he's been entirely ineffectual. We had, we had in my one of my classes this week we had a bit we kind of had that discussion of like well what is it a good thing he's doing and uh, the students were very very thoughtful about well you need to play real politics honestly that's what I tried to get Natan Sharansky to really articulate clearly and he was way too sophisticated and diplomatic to give now can I just mention my myopic uh, naive I think everything you said is right and I think that the consequence of what you're saying is important I will tell you my own myopic silly perspective on why these things don't interest me. It's because I've been to like teacher conferences, educators conferences, and you walk away with this feeling of, wow, that was like amazing. Like I really gained so much. And then, and then you ask, what did you gain? <laughs> and you're like, oh, a bunch of new ideas and new perspectives. And I met a bag, some free lunch, you know, some awesome swag. And I met such interesting people and there was such cross pollination. And in the end, what you get is a sense of motivation or, or connection, but it doesn't really, it's not, it doesn't really change much. It's a feeling of something happened. So, so I think in the diplomatic world, at least a little bit, what I would say is different is for a conference like this to happen, there's months and months of, of multilateral discussions going on. And that's where the real work is. That this is this is the fact that we're having these multilateral discussions with all these different countries, Arab and Western, about about what's happening in the Middle East. That's that's where the real thing. This is kind of just the photo op of those discussions. So it's not, and I would argue that that photo op isn't just superficial. I think that I, I would, in defense of your perspective, I would argue that in 1897 when Theodor Herzl called the Zionist Congress together, it didn't really change much on the ground, but it changed in 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 in. In politics and diplomacy, perception is reality. So creating this perception of, oh, we all had this feeling that things are going that way, but creating a photo op opportunity like that where they're, where they're together really gives a sense that things are different than they used to be. It makes it feel more real than it was. I think the other thing to point out, because we're talking about real politics, is that because Israel is in the middle of its election campaign, this was seen by, uh, or Bibi was presenting this as, wow, look at me, look how awesome I am. I'm getting these allies together. We're beginning to get be more normalized with the Arab world. Um, and then, of course, for those of you that didn't hear about this, Bibi's office, uh, in inverted commas, accidentally uploaded a video to YouTube of a closed session of just the Arab leaders that Israel was not supposed to be present at. And they put this video up in which the uh, le leaders of some of the Arab countries or the foreign ministers basically said, we're less worried about the Palestinian issue today, and we're now much more worried about the Iranian issue. That was not meant for public consumption. That is, well, I, yeah, I never know if to believe wow. things like that or not. Like, I, in other words, did you leak it by accident or did you leak it on purpose because you shouldn't put things like that out, but we're putting it out? And, and the well, Arabs, too. I'm saying the Arab world yeah. might have wanted that out without wanting to, without being able to put it out. Could you leak this for us? Well, exactly. And then, of course, it was seized on by Bibi's uh, opponents saying, by using this uh, methodology and trying to uh, leak things that the Arab world are trying to maybe maybe or maybe not uh, put into the public sphere, you're now endangering uh, the hard work that you've done for the sake of some cheap election points. 
Who knows? Right, and they're criticizing it without knowing what really happened. They're criticizing the appearance of what happened for their cheap election points. That's what politics is. 20, 30 years from now, we'll find out what really happened and forget all the political back and forth. Right, everybody's scoring cheap points, and nobody knows what, at what expense are these cheap points being scored. Right. I mean, there were a lot of, there were, there were like all of a sudden with this whole conversation, there were a lot of these like uh, crazy diplomatic brouhaha's. That's what I've been calling them in my, in my classes, like diplomatic brouhaha's, like, I, if we, I would love if, if a, a devoted listener to this podcast who really feels it's the most important thing in the world to them, if they could sit down and over the course of our 112 episodes, can you make a smash cut of how many times we said brouhaha <laughs> in the last three years? Um, uh, they, you had the one that Matt just spoke about, about the leaking. Then you had um, a mistranslation from uh, BB's Hebrew from a, a question of a journalist that got mistranslated by the Jerusalem Post and then other also places, whereas he um, referred to Poles who uh, collaborated with uh, Nazis. In World War II. In World War II. And um, it was translated as, uh, I think, believe, um, Polish nation in... Poland. Instead of Poles collaborated, it's like Poland collaborated, something like that. Yeah, I think it was Pol- Polish nation in Jerusalem Post, and then others put it as the Poles. Or, or, you know, with uh, the, the, the specific. There's a difference between Poles collaborated with Nazis and the Poles collaborated with Nazis. There's yeah. a big difference. Right. So that created this huge thing where there was the, 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 the continuation of this uh, great diplomatic moment for BB last week was supposed to be followed up by a great diplomatic meet this week with four of what's called the Visegrad um, countries in, in the Eastern European bloc. Hungary, Czech, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland meeting for the first time in outside of Europe to discuss uh, things that they discuss, you know, with Israel. And then Poland, because of that, withdrew, was it back and forth until, of course, it came to a, uh, it's still in the head, it's still bubbling, it's still in the news. The, well, the, well, the brouhaha is still going on. It's brouhaha er. And because Bibi was court mandated to release the foreign ministry to somebody else to be the head, uh, Katz's first day as foreign minister, in addition to being information and uh, uh, intelligence and uh, transportation minister, because God forbid somebody can hold one ministry like foreign ministry and that's enough of a job, on his first day, he initiated another level of the brouhaha-ness. Yeah, what ended up causing the ca- complete cancellation of this yeah. conference was when he quoted, uh, it was Yitzhak Shemir, I think, that yeah. he quoted when he said that Poles basically uh, drink anti-Semitism from birth. They suckle it with a, suckle anti-Semitism with their mother's milk or something like that. Um, and at that point, the Polish Prime Minister said, "You know what? You're being racist. And forget this. We're leaving the conference." And the whole conference collapsed. So Alan was talking about months and months before. You know how oh, the, no, the others came. The others came. They were just called them bilateral talks as opposed to a conference. Okay. So, <laughs> say that, but the idea of this big event that was supposed to be this conference happening in Israel that was the culmination, as we talked about a few minutes ago, of many months of conversation and negotiations and, and back channels and things like that. Suddenly, it just the, the uh, status of the meeting was lowered because now it wasn't a conference, it was bilateral talks. And well, Which again, my, my cynical political brain starts saying, well, was that a slip that Katz did as the new diplomat, head diplomat of the State of Israel to anger the Poles? Or, or, or were, was that a... Was that a uh, B.B. accidentally having his new foreign minister hand uh, the racist right a <laughs> look how tough we are kind of thing to, to, for his base. Was that throwing red meat to his base? I, I don't even know. So, 
or just gross incompetence by a diplomat who engages in anti-Polish racism openly. I, I, by the way, I don't blame Yitzhak Shamir for saying that as a person who, an immigrant who experienced that kind of anti-Semitism ends up scarred. Grew up in Bialystok. Yeah, so he, so he, has, he, has East, he had Eastern European scars on his, psychologically, so I don't blame him, but certainly the foreign minister of the state of Israel shouldn't say something like that. I'm not so sure the prime minister should say it either, even if he's a. But it was a different I, time. But I don't think any. I don't think any anyone should say it. Obviously, I think it's political malpractice. But I understand psychologically where somebody like Shamir came with it. Right, but we've also spoken uh, a, a long time ago when the, the polls passed that law about how the Holocaust should be reported and how the way people are supposed to speak about the Holocaust when in Poland. And well, this this quote clearly goes completely against what the Polish. Uh, narrative is of how the Holocaust played out. So, well, you can, I would say the current government, which rules, which is what you were talking about before, this is a very right-wing government, the Law and Justice Government Party, that um, that is runs on one of the one of their main things is the is the revision of history in World War II and the role of Poles in the Polish nation and what is Poland. And the problem with what, uh, when, when you have people like Yisrael Katz make these... Um, our new foreign minister. Our new foreign minister make these ignorant and completely... Um, uh, sweeping? Yes, uh, sweeping, but ignorant and completely like ridiculous statements, even though that's not the word I'm looking for, but okay. Uh, statements is that it actually takes an issue that's very complicated and then all of a sudden becomes focused on this racist comment he made without focusing on the issue, which is... Yeah, there were lots of Poles who were anti-Semitic. That, and, and in fact, even though the Polish government in exile did try and do things for the Jews, that wasn't their main goal. And even though there was a Polish un, uh, underground organization called Zagoda that tried to um, help Jews and did help Jews and saved many Jews, um, there were also many, many thousands of Poles who, who did the opposite, who, who collaborated, who, who murdered Jews. Who there were anti-Nazi undergrounds that collaborated with hurting Jews or were neutral on the issue of Jews. It's, it's any, I mean, this is sort of the, you know, the, 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 I don't know if it's a conclusion, but what we, the, the way we looked at it in that episode back when Poland made the law was anything you do that increases nuance and acknowledges complication, I'm for. Anything you do that tries to sweep complications under the rug, that's, I think, bad. And, and I don't think here Katz was, was being helpful in that regard. On the, I don't think he was on the right side of that by saying Poles suckle anti-Semitism with their mother's milk. That's a, that's a pretty... But it's interesting that when you said that the quote originally came from Yitzhak Shemir, I'm not saying you justified the quote, but you were saying that the quote was more understandable. Well, my bubby said things like that, you know, because she grew up in Poland, and, 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 and so she had that sort of... Well, she was always very nice to the Polish cleaning lady, but she had that racist... It was visceral for that generation. A, that generation had a visceral racism in response to being right. racially discriminated against. Right. So the contextualization of who said it and when it's said is an interesting thing. Because so for Yitzhak Shamir to say, even though, e even though in both cases it's clearly a racist and sweeping generalization that takes away any nuance, it's interesting, right? We kind of, we understand it when your Babi says it or when Yitzhak Shamir says it, but when in the 21st century, when the uh, foreign minister of the state of Israel says it, child of survivors. Child of Holocaust survivors. Let's not, but if we're going to put context in there, let's put it in there. But it still it still sounds much more outrageous, right? So it's it's an interesting thing when we talk about these ideas of with these racist comments, how we contextualize them. It's just interesting that we can justify it more easily in one sense, in a generational sense. But when we try today, it doesn't it doesn't sit right. 
don't know. I, I don't. I mean, I don't think it was so much justified. It was more like uh, understanding. But the, and and this is BB's essential problem. I would uh, yeah. I would separate understanding from justifying. I don't think those are the same thing. I can understand the Nazi movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Comments by saying you weren't justifying, yeah, yeah. but yeah. yeah. I think that the, um, and this is, be, this is a big challenge that's going on. It's a big challenge for us in education. In other words, we talk about having nuance. We talk about things are complicated. Um, and, and, and BB is getting from his, like, lots of different places, his cozying up to these very right-wing governments in Eastern Europe, as you mentioned before, who, who use anti-Semitism as part of their platforms to get elected. And, and then all of a sudden, he, you know, so, you know, was it manufactured to to play to his right? I don't know. You know, may, maybe it was maybe it was very well, but it would it, wor it works well for him there. <laughs> I, I sure hope not. Look, let's be honest. Uh, you know, as a person who came from America, racism was much more taboo in America, and certainly open articulations of racism were much more taboo in America than they are in Israel. And I would also say, unfortunately, I would say in the more America we grew up in anyway. Well, it. it I mean, as we see, like in the America of social media, it's, I don't know, I mean, it seems rampant to me, you know? Yeah, because you can be an anonymous troll on social media and say things that are taboo and disgusting to get people to look at your social media output that you wouldn't say in a room full of people because it's still, uh, it's still a... Uh, it's still it's still a taboo, and do people are people comfortable breaking that taboo anonymously? Sure, but they they don't totally do it out in the open in mo in, in places of work or things like that. So, and in Israel, I think I, I I've heard much more casual racism, uh, and I would say also in the religious community, you you hear a really uh, there is a comfort level with using racist language in Israel in general and in the religious community in particular that I find deeply problematic and bodes ill for a nation which is, sees, which is meant to see itself as a light to other nations and is racist, comfortably racist in talking about other nations. That is, that you, you sense in a, an elitism and a sense of superiority and, a, and a, I think is very deeply unhealthy. Uh, you shared something the other day, I don't know if you want to share with it, about the a cleaning crew from a school do you remember that you shared with us? Oh, you're talking about the issue that you're, uh, the issue that banned its Arab worker. There's fighting to get all the Arab workers thrown out because yeah. they don't want Arabs there. Yeah, that they that there's a big. Uh, um, Without mentioning the issue, I mean, there was a news story where they were trying. They, you know, you have you have certainly, especially in the West Bank, but also all over Israel, you have Arabs who work in Jewish places, and you know. Unfortunately, during the second intifada, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, there was a lot there that that became a security concern during the second intifada when Arabs who even knew people and worked in places were sabotaging things. And so today, I understand that security conversation. But there was a news story last week, and I, I don't want to belabor it because it's it's pretty humiliating. But it was openly racist, and it was like there was one of the commenters was like, "Yeah, we're proudly racist. Like we think we're superior, and Arabs are inferior, and we don't want them here." And that's just, a, it was unmasked. And, and there was a comfortableness doing that that I found deeply troubling. Yeah, I mean, and I, I you know, find it for sure. There's a, it, it definitely runs in the, um, in, in this, uh, you know, in this country that we're in. And part of it, as we talked about before, about understanding without justifying it, part of it is, is this long, deep running 
um, war that we're at. I mean, we can't, you know, we, there's quieter times, Bo Hashem, like now, but it, it, is really, uh, it is really a war. And that creates a tremendous us and them. And so how, how, do, you retain, how do you retain your humanity in, in this kind of uh, polarized, uh, polarized situation? And, and, and unfortunately, it comes out in very racist ways. And, uh, okay. It's not uncommon for Israeli Judaic studies educators from Israel to do shlichut, to go to you know, a diaspora school and teach for a few years and then come back to Israel. And it's a way to expand your horizons, and it looks good in your resume, and you also make a lot more money. So, and I was a few years ago, I was talking to one of my friends who lives here and asked him, you know, did he ever think about shlichut and coming to teach in in uh, in the states? And he said, I really don't want to because I just don't feel like being out of Israel. But there, I do have a reason that I do want to, which is my kids grow up in Israel, where the other are Arabs, but if I but if who they see as a threat. But if, uh, when you grow up in America, the others are your neighbors and your friends and your colleagues. So it is much easier to raise a kid without, without an unconscious racism in the States. So I would love to give my kids two or three years of that kind of de-racism training, in, in sort of subconsciously, culturally. I would like them to imbibe that, because I fear that they are imbibing this, I mean, I don't want to say in the mother's milk, but, it, but imbibing this sort of, what you're describing as unconsciously, you sort of fear the other, and then you, that leads to the villainization and, and, and hatred of the other. And our politicians, unfortunately, manipulate that. I mean, in the last election, and we'll see what happens now, you know, Bibi, in the, during the day of the election, says, get out and vote because the Arabs are voting and they're going to throw it off. I mean, that's, you know, clearly fear-mongering of the other and all of those and all of those things. And it's important to note it was actually a very successful tactic yeah. because it got him a boost of, of seats that he wouldn't otherwise necessarily have got. So, and, it was, it was, and it was a lie. They, they weren't voting in any more ratio than they ever do. But he was also saying things about how the left-wing uh, NGOs are bringing busloads to vote and, and to manipulate the system. So we yeah, he made that up, and he lied, and it was racist, and he had to apologize for it afterwards because 20% of Israeli citizens are Arabs, and he had to do some crow-eating. I, I don't know that it's proven uh, that... I think, it, that I, I, I think he knew he was going to have to make that apology, and he didn't oh, care. Sure. But yeah, it, it was a calculated thing. I'm going to throw this... To get his extra seats yeah. and his extra power in the, in the government, so great. I, I don't know that we proved that it, that it succeeded for him, but it may have. And the very fact that he thought it would and the very fact that we think it, that was a reasonable gamble is deeply disturbing, as is the fact that, that you were talking about earlier, Alan, how the Bayi Yehudi, which was, which was supposed to be the, the religious Zionist party, political party was Mafdal, which was a dovish party until 67, became hawkish after 67. Then under Naftali Bennett was sort of less as a religious Zionist party and more as a... Well, uh, Bennett wants to be powerful, so... Well, he broke away. He, he sort of turned Mafdal into Bayi Yehudi to be more broad than just a religious Zionist party, but a sort of traditional... Jewish culture right-wing party to sort of, and by, by him and Ayala Jaked leaving, turns it back into Mafdal, which is a religious Zionist party, and you were reading in the news earlier that they've uh, joined together. With uh, an extreme racist party, and I don't think there's any other way to say it, a, a manifestation of the Kach party, um, which was... Under a different name, because that's illegal. Yeah, that's illegal, which was under Rabbi Meir Kahana was the um, uh, uh, head of the Kach party who 
blatantly and openly um, proposed uh, racist ideology. Um, so it was banned, and he was, he was actually thrown out of the Knesset, and he was actually banned, um, his party and him from the Knesset. Um, and it's more now 30 years, 40 years later, I don't know how much now it is, right? Into what, what's called the Otsma or something. Last time they didn't get into it. Now they've joined the, the Baijudi, and that to me is very. Hello. For example, some of the. So it seems that all of the current members of the Otsma Liudi have very strong connections to Mayor Kahana, right? And to the Kach Party. One was the secretary for, for him, and one was a student of his. And if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, I, I would go as far as to say it probably is a duck. By the way, I'm, I am opposed to uh, making parties illegal. I, I think that that's the wrong thing to do. I think if, you're, if there's an overtly racist party and it's succeeding in society, then you have a bigger problem than that, that there is a party. I think politicians and leaders need to step up to to uh, you know, firmly lodge it at a fringe and, and, and sort of make a mainstream rejection of it. And by pretending it's not there... Well, that's what you get. You pretend it's not there, so they regroup, call themselves something else, and it's still there. Um, so, so one, me, one of the big questions that people have that a lot of my students well, ask me is... They didn't get into the last Knesset. No, they didn't get into the last Knesset, but now you have that, and you also have Zehut, which is, which is much more subtly racist, but still looks for things like treating the Arab, Arab Israeli citizens differently than Jewish Israeli citizens. But now that they've joined with Bayou D, and according to the polls, Bayou D are going to get uh, eight, nine seats, and this group that we're talking about now, they've just secured places five and eight on the list. So it's basically very, very likely at least one, maybe two or three of their uh, representatives will be in the Knesset. Assuming that this doesn't change the course of where they fit in the polls. In other words, the polls, were, we haven't had a poll since they joined. So that may change the course of their... I, I would hesitate to say that it will decrease their support, but we'll see. I, I don't know. I, I, I know people, I think it, it, would, it would potentially push over to the Likud. Right? On the other hand, they took votes away from the right last time by not getting in. In other words, that, that's always the problem with the smaller parties is they take votes away from other parties. So it redistributes everything. So you, you could go either way. But I, I'm sure there are people who will go over to Likud or Naftali Bennett with this joining. Because I, I, there's enough people in the Israeli right who really hate that kind of racism. Yeah, and I think many, many people who would vote for Bayoudi, religious Zionists, don't, don't ascribe to that racism whatsoever and find it abhorrent so here's hoping i just want to come back to one thing before we wrap up is to the thing that mike was saying about banning parties so one of the questions that my students often have is in terms of like the arab parties um inevitably there's one or two members of knesset who sit in those parties who say some pretty outrageous things about jews and about yeah. the jewish soldiers and things about israel right and so the question is well where 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 is that line why are you allowed to do it on the left, but not on the right. Are you allowed to? How? Who decides these things? So it's an interesting question that comes up in terms of democracy. Where do you let democracy function and and do its thing, and where do you put red lines in? I, I don't know the answer. I, I I mean, I'm an American. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my attitudes are, unless it's it's screaming fire in a crowded movie house and causing a clear and present danger, then speech should be uh, protected and free, which it isn't in Israel or other countries. So. Well, yeah, Mike's a purist. I'm less of a purist. I think that you have to take it into context. In the context, we're not. I think that the the problematic things that Arab Knesset members say should be also legislated in the problematic. And um, I think we need to be diligent, just like you know, from the other side of perspective, thing like 
places like Germany have limit what you can say about a Holocaust, about Holocaust denial. I think it has to be taken contextually in the society that you're in. So what you end up with is the, the people who, who hold those positions end up dog whistling and, and coding and finding ways to express it, and society can fig leaf that they don't really have those views. And they're there waiting to bubble at the surface, and then suddenly there'll be a cultural change, and all of a sudden everybody's tweeting racist garbage and destroying Jewish synagogues in France, and people are like, what? Where did that come from? And it turns out you just hid in it all the while. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that sunlight is the is the best antiseptic and and just let everything show the way it is without trying to hide it through legislating morality and 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 fair speech yeah i don't think it's as black as white as just hiding it i think it's you know it's good to wear sunglasses when you go outside it protects the eyes well i think that the sun is a mass of incandescent gas (laughs) and therefore that analogy is now beaten uh do we do we are are I have, just as a closing comment, I have a friend who is shocked, shocked at the gross level of personal uh, insult, whether it's picking on Sibby, Sippy Livney, who dropped out of politics, and the Likud ran a sort of social media thing saying, what a loser, you know, look at her, here's, here, here's her downfall, she shifted it, really insulting, instead of, uh, and, and you have uh, Gantz now, Benny Gantz now saying, like, uh, oh, Bibi Netanyahu is like this rich, spoiled guy who went to America and while he was at parties and dating non-Jewish girls, I was in the mud with my friends. And, 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 and my friend was sort of feeling that like, wow, politics are getting more personal and ugly than usual. And I said, do you not follow Israeli politics very much? Because to- Personal and ugly. And I have to say, uh, I had this conversation with my wife um, saying that if I'd had any thought that I may or may not vote for Benny Gantz, the fact that he's gone so personal and so vicious against Bibi, makes me very, very uncomfortable. So I would, I would like to vote for somebody who's not into negative campaigning. And she replied, well, then you have to vote for Mickey Mouse. That was it. Uh, there's no one that doesn't engage in negative campaigning, unfortunately. No, there's a difference between negative campaigning and personal campaigning. In other words, if I, if I campaign that I think his plan is bad, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's the, that's the argument. Right. But if I say BB's a wimp or a loser... I, I was referring to the personal negative campaigning, and that's where I don't think, any, I don't think anybody withholds from that either. Uh, if you can tell me someone that doesn't, then they'll get my vote, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure, I'm, gonna, I'm not sure who I'm voting for, but I would argue that, that uh, Yeshatid policy is that you don't do that, and they try to... They're probably better at uh, moving away from it by policy because it's policy, they shy away from it more than anybody, probably. So I agree, that is their policy. But I think in actuality, though, I'm not sure if that's actually what happens. Yeah, but public, I think the effort is, is, is worthwhile. I think all parties should, uh, should at least sign a, you know, a, a, a shared agreement that we will not go ad hominem. And then when they slip, they slip. But I think that should be a standard. And that should be a, political, a politically accepted norm in any democracy. Yeah, I don't think it is anywhere. I don't think it is anywhere, and certainly not in Israel, which is a pretty bare knuckled, you know, in a way that's very depressing. On a, on a, and I, you know, I think what else is the, uh, the thing about Israel is is that when you get up to that level of elites, and you're also talking about a lot of interconnectivity in army service and going to school together and growing up, like it's very right. I find it. Uh... It's classless, and it does the thing that you know when, when when parents fight in front of their kids in a certain way. You can you know obviously parents argue in front of their kids, but when it's a really nasty dra- you knock down drag out in front of your kids, your kids lose a sense of security and a sense of safety, and a sense of respect. Even you know when when whether whether it's rabbinic leaders or political leaders or any sort of leaders when they fight in that sort of 
bare-knuckled way, it's bad for society. So, but I don't think there's anything new under the sun here. That was depressing. Positive ending note. Um, we've gotten some more rain. That's good. We need it. Yeah, really good, really good. Uh, I'm about to go and teach a very nice class at Aardvark, which is very positive for me. Which is where we are, so thank them. I, we thank them for the room. It's Shushampurm Katan. Yeah, the day after my birthday, Katan, because uh, Purnima's birthday, so this is a weird uh, uh, first Adar festival. And we look forward to more healthy communal discourse in the future. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, This is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.